Good evening, everyone. Any of you guys chat with um, friends or uh, family, like in the Midwest or the Northeast, um, about, and you're like afraid to even mention that you're feeling cold right about now? Like, and then, and then you do mention it and then you just get judged and that's hard. And then you have to have like a reconciliation conversation with them. It's, it's hard, right? I, it's 50 degrees outside or whatever. And that's cold for Florida, right? Like we can acknowledge that. I am. Yeah. It, yeah. The last couple of days have been hard for me. Um, like seriously, a lot harder than they ever should have been. And yes, I know I'm from California, but it's still 30 degrees over there right now. So like where I'm from. So, um, so with that in mind, that's how we know that Christmas is getting close because we have that first um, near like 20 degrees away from winter freeze of the year for Florida. Um, and we know that Christmas is nearing us. Now we have Thanksgiving later this week and specifically Turkey Eve on Wednesday, which is going to be so much fun. Um, but I wanted to give you guys, uh, before we get into the message tonight, a couple announcements about things that are coming up within the Christmas season, knowing that some of you might not be here next Sunday uh, because of traveling and stuff with the Thanksgiving holiday. Now, the first thing is that Advent uh, begins on um, Sunday, November 27th. And so with that in mind, we started a tradition around here last year. We did it for Easter as well uh, of an Advent devotional. And so we have a series of devotionals that are for you to take. They're a daily devotional for the entire Advent season. Those are for you to take as you are leaving tonight. Our blue shirts would love to hand you one, two, or as many as you'd like. We can always order more, um, but they're completely free to you. And they're really, really solid, helpful, um, enlightening, centering on, uh, on Christ um, in the space of Christmas. Um, so, so grab those on your way out. The second thing is our uncommon love cards. Um, we have holiday uncommon love cards for you to take. Uh, and uh, uncommon love is obviously a tradition that began here um, within the Disney campus, going to the parks and uh, and going and encouraging cast members uh, and seeing what God would do with that conversation. And we, over the last few years, have turned that into a Christmas tradition with a specific uh, Christmas-themed uncommon love card. So we have some of those for you to take uh, as you leave. To, to go not just at Walt Disney World, but wherever you go to Walt, um, Winter Garden Village or Champions Gate or wherever um, wherever you're going to do shopping or eating at restaurants or wherever, just take those with you. Uh, tip well and be an encouragement to those that uh, that you want to simply just say, I see you. I know that uh, this is a hard season for many in the service industry. Uh, and thank you just for being awesome and taking care of us and just seeing what the Spirit does with those conversations. Uh, next, uh, Winterfest is coming up. Uh, we are going to be jumping into our Christmas series on December 11th this year, and uh, it's going to be uh, just a three a three-week series. And with that in mind, uh, we always kick off on the first week of our Christmas series with a thing we call Winterfest, which is an opportunity for us to just enjoy some surprise and delight opportunities um, within the gathering space and as you guys come into the lobby and when you leave. Um, so just know that you, that's going to be a Sunday you're not going to miss because uh, it's going to be a really fun um, and uh, just just such a helpful and centering uh, Christmas series that we're going to be going into. And the last thing I want to tell you about was probably the biggest thing that you should know is that if you were to come here on uh, December 24th, Christmas Eve at 7.02, you would find this room to not be occupied by us. 
Now we will be gathering still, it just won't be in this space. Instead, because of some scheduling things that were going on, it provided us an opportunity, something we've never done before, where we are going to be having our Christmas Eve gathering outside in, uh, in, our, in the neighborhood, the Hibbets um, neighborhood over in Windermere, only about 10 minutes away from here. And we are going to be gathering outside. I know some of you guys have family coming in town and you're like, oh man, they already think Mosaic's a weird church as it is. Now you're meeting outside for sure. Tell them it's going to be so good. We're going to have a candlelight service outside. It's going to be beautiful. Um, and so we're just asking that you bring uh, some, uh, maybe a picnic blanket to sit on or some chairs or whatever as we come together to worship. And then what's really cool about it is that after, immediately after the service, we're going to go across the street into the Hibbets home and we're going to have a Christmas Eve party together and just enjoy time together, uh, knowing that you're a lot, for a lot of you, your Christmas day is going to look pretty gnarly. So we want to give us a space to, um, to enjoy biblical community together. So that's all for you to know. Um, if, if you have friends or family coming in town and they're like, I still don't know, that sounds super weird. Um, have them come and talk to me and I'd love to share the vision behind it with them as well. Sound good? Cool. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, more details on all that. I just wanted you to be aware of that. We'll give you the address and stuff. We're not going to make you guess where the location is going to be, okay? All right, cool. Well, this week I did something that I, uh, I, I haven't done since I was a little kid, and that was going to physical therapy um, because I, have, I injured both of my rotator cuffs. Now, I would imagine that we would probably all agree it's important to seek the right treatment as quickly as possible when you are injured. I would absolutely agree with that sentiment. The only problem is I am a knucklehead. And what I mean by that is I'm just kind of dumb sometimes. Like I don't do the things that I know I should do sometimes. Um, See, I didn't, I didn't injure my rotary cuffs this November. I wrote, I injured them last November and I literally just didn't go to a physical therapist for, I decided like that the birthday of the injury was a great time to go and actually start to treat the injury. Um, and over the course of last year, I first started, I injured it, um, working out and both of them working out and So the first thing I tried to do was to try to work through the pain, to push through the pain at all costs. Just just ignore the pain, go through the pain, live with it. You might imagine that made it worse. It did. It made it way, way, way worse. So then after making it worse, I tried to do something different. I didn't go to a doctor. I decided to craft my own solutions to the problem. Now you might wonder, what's your expertise? Not. And so that also only made it worse. See, it made it worse when I almost dropped heavy weights on myself last November, and, um, and then I didn't go to the doctor. So then January rolled around, and it was so painful from just trying to push through that literally I couldn't sleep very easily at night because as I would ro- roll around in bed, it would literally wake me up with the sharpest pains in either shoulder because both of them were injured. Um, I still didn't go to the doctor. Then April rolls around and holding my daughter, Abby, she's two, um, was literally painful for me. I still didn't go to the doctor. Then August comes around and I decide now is the time to go to the doctor. So I go to my doctor and, um, and then she, uh, she uh, gives me a recommendation to go to a physical therapist, which I didn't do until this last week. I'm a knucklehead, y'all. See, it took me resigning myself that this problem was not going to go away on its own and that I wasn't going to fix the problem in my extremely limited expertise. 
And it was this reminder that God continues to remind me of that my way doesn't usually lead to flourishing. My way of doing things doesn't usually lead to flourishing. My stubbornness does not bring about healing. Now, maybe you're a lot better than I am, but I would imagine that we could all admit that we don't have it all figured out. I mean, I know I do not have it all figured out. In fact, can you guys say that with me really quick? Say that with me. Say, I do not have it all figured out. Okay, now let's say that with a we because we're in a group of people who all don't have it figured out, all right? Say it with me. We do not have it all figured out. Yes, that's so freeing for me. Thank you, guys. All right, we don't have it all figured out. Now, tonight we're going to be talking about the problem of sin, the broken thoughts and desires and motivations and actions that lead us to a separation from God and do not lead us to true flourishing. Our way of handling sin is usually most similar to the way that I have tried to handle my shoulder injuries. We either ignore the problem, um, we excuse our sin as, well, that's just the way I am, that's the way I am. It's just the way I'm wired, so I just kind of do that thing. Or I, or we simply say, well, I don't really care either way. I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. So we ignore the problem. We treat it as if it's not a real problem. Or we recognize that it's a problem, and we begin to believe that if I got myself into this mess, then it is my responsibility to get myself out of it. So we begin to work so hard in our own wisdom, in our own strength, in our own understanding to bring about a solution. Now, maybe either of those is already bringing examples from last week to your mind. For those of us who are the ignorers in the house, my question is, how has ignoring the problem worked out for you so far? For the fixers among us, how is trying to just simply shoulder the burden, fight through it, come up with our own solution, how has that worked out for you so far? I am both naturally an ignorer and a fixer, depending on the circumstance. And neither of them have ever led me to a life of flourishing with God. Now tonight we continue on our journey in the letter from the Apostle Paul to his disciple, a guy named Timothy. We know it is the letter of 1 Timothy. And what has happened so far, as a quick recap, is Paul has written this letter to Timothy because he had already sent Timothy to the church in Ephesus to go and shepherd and pastor this church. And so he is writing this letter to him to bring about some light into certain spaces and some pastoral wisdom into his young disciple as he is shepherding this church when he can't be near them. Now, this is the church in Ephesus. Uh, a few years ago now, we were in a letter to, that Paul wrote specifically to the entire church in Ephesus. You might remember that. If not, you're more welcome to podcast it. But one of the things we talked about was that during this time frame, during this time frame, the city of Ephesus, that's in modern day Turkey, had a great deal of loyalty to Rome. And there was good reason for it because in 48 BC, there was a massive earthquake that destroyed the city. Like it just, like just demolished, demolished the city. And then Julius Caesar spends a ton of resources to restore and build up the city better than before, fortifies it and everything. And because of this, the people in Ephesus are very loyal to Rome. They were, they were like, 
It was like little Rome. They dressed like Romans. They worshiped like Romans. They acted like Romans. They talked like Romans. They did everything the Roman way. They even built a statue of Julius Caesar in their center, their, their, uh, their town square with this inscription on it. Think of like the partner statue. If it said something like this, the manifest God sprung from Ares, who is the, the God of war and death and Aphrodite, who's the goddess of fertility and life. The manifest God and universal savior of human life. I'm really thankful that the plaque at Walt Disney World doesn't say that about Walt, you know? But like, this was the culture that they lived in. This guy saved their city, so they're, yeah, absolutely. He's the guy, he's the savior, not just of our, of, of human life in general. Like, that's Julius Caesar. Now, it's been about 100 years at this point, Julius Caesar's been dead. So, Savior of human life. Great. Okay. Now, this church was meant to represent, though, not the Roman way of life. They're meant to represent the way of Jesus, demonstrating the culture of the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of Rome, not the world around them, which is why Paul is writing this letter, correcting these false teachers that we've been talking about throughout this series. These false teachers have been resting on myths and teaching a way to earn your salvation through what uh, the the big word is asceticism, but it's doing things, cutting certain things out, doing certain things so that God might be pleased with you. But you see what these false teachers were ultimately doing was they were still doing things the Roman way. They were doing things the way that the world around them was doing it. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse six, and there Paul starts from where we left off last week. If you put these things before the brothers. So what has just happened where we're at last week is Paul has just been correcting all of this, all this misinformation, all this, this terrible theology and ethical living that he's been encouraging that, that these false teachers have been bringing about. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, if you call these things out, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So where we were at last week, all the talk was about these individuals been driven towards legalism, where we earn our way back to God. And Paul has been encouraging Timothy to now take that message, that, that correction, not just to the false teachers, but to the entire church. Why? What I love about him is he is using this not as just a teachable moment and a correction moment for these false teachers, but of a teachable moment for the entire community. Not to shame, but to explain that these false teachers who scholars believe were likely even elders, shepherds of this church at some point, they, were in, they had, had great influence that no one is above falling to the temptations to revert to our own way, our own understanding, our own sinful patterns and behaviors. So Paul says, being trained in words of the faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Because you see, this is what these false teachers need. This is the correction that they need. This is what Timothy needs. This is what the entire church in Ephesus needs. This is what we, in our day, in our cultural moment, need. To be trained in words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. This is vitally important that we understand what this kind of training is, what it means. And that's what this passage is about tonight. 
Paul goes on in verse seven to say, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Irreverent, silly myths. So these myths that these false teachers were engaging in were both silly and pointless. It is most likely that they were, that they had been, uh, going into myth-making and uh, speculating about myths regarding the early uh, chapters of the book of Genesis. And they had been going on and on and on, silly, pointless stuff. This type of speculation, it was not meant to get room to breathe within the church. Notice that these myths are the polar opposite of what Paul refers to here as as good doctrine in the words of the faith. See, the words of the faith, good doctrine, what that should lead us to is life, light, and freedom. But these myths are leading to pointless conversations. They're silly. They're leading to death. So these types of speculations have no air to breathe within the church. The only problem is it has. And this air was exactly what was breathed in the culture around them. Myth-making was the norm in the Greco-Roman world. These, these ever-growing stories about the Roman pantheon of gods, like that was normal in their world, in their culture. In fact, most, most of the Romans believed that there might be some historical accuracy to these myths at some point, but that the poets and playwrights continued over the centuries to add all of this silly myth-making to it, where it was hard to, to know what the actual truth was behind any of the myths. Now, why is this relevant? Because this is exactly what these false teachers have been doing. They have been focusing and misguiding other believers into all kinds of craziness, all kinds of misinformation, all kinds of heresy that was leading people away from Jesus, not towards him. They had been focusing on both pointless myths and legalistic rules. They recognized the, now these these false teachers recognized the problem of humanity, that there was sin. Hence why, where we were at last week, they talked about, they were teaching against eating certain types of food. Uh, and they were also telling people to not get married. Because in both of these things, they saw an opportunity to do things that were good, impressive, holy, right. See, they wanted a solution that made sense to them and it made them the enlightened ones. It made them have the power and everyone else in bondage. Now, this is kind of a big deal. <laughs> Hence why Paul writes, have some things to do with them. No, have nothing to do with these kinds of things because these realities are corruptive and corrosive realities that represent the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of light. So Paul continues from there, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I love that in this passage, we don't just get a don't do that. Don't just, don't just avoid the silly, irreverent myths. He gives a redirection, what their minds should be captivated on. And this is where we get the call to train. Now, the Greek word used here is the, the word gymnasi. Uh, it's where we get our word gymnasium. And uh, 
originally the ancient gymnasiums were created in the um, the Greek world to mold the strongest soldiers. Like that was the initial intent in all the city states. You would have your uh, your soldiers come and get stronger and stronger so that they could go and win wars. But at this point, the Romans are now in charge and the gymnasiums are no longer used for that purpose. So instead, they become used and focused towards a different cause, which was what the Romans referred to as body sculpting. In other words, they were like people are going there to get swole. And so that was the world that they were living in. Now, when any of us go to a gym, we probably also go to a gym for a reason. You don't just happen to go like, gym just sounds like a fun thing to do today probably at least for most of us, I'd imagine. But you go to the gym for a reason, to feel healthier, to feel swole, to get stronger for a sport that you're uh, involved in, or because it's just a great place to hang out with friends for whatever reason, right? You go to the gym for a reason because it's a space of training. Now, Paul's not criticizing working out, but what he is doing is he is calling out how temporary that type of focus is. See, there's nothing that has as much of a guarantee of breaking down as the human body. Training your body does have some value, but it does stop working as well over time, no matter how disciplined you are. There are a lot of things that have some value and that require discipline, right? not just working out, but your career takes discipline. If you want to grow in your career, it takes discipline. If you are saving for a new vehicle or a down payment on a home, it takes discipline. If you are getting your degree through Aspire and you're in that one class that you really wish you weren't in anymore, like it takes discipline to get through and get the degree. Now, all of those things have some value. But Paul wants to focus, wants this church to focus their energy, not just on things that have some value, such as training the body, but on the one thing that has value in every way, training and godliness. See, the difference that he makes here between the things that carry some value and the thing that carries all value, he explains it this way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, when you think of training in godliness, do you think of something that actually has benefit in the here and now? Probably not nearly as much as we could or should, right? We think like, yeah, I should do things like Jesus and because like I'm saved or whatever. And like, that's like the extent of it, but that's not what Paul is getting into here. See, the things that we pursue and work so hard for matters. And they matter to us because they fit in with some value that we hold. So if you work hard in a hobby you hold, say you run marathons, you do every Disney race, you do dopey and all of it. Like if that is you, you do that because it holds value for you. If it didn't hold value for you, you probably wouldn't do it, I would imagine, right? But this other thing, has a better return on investment because it holds value for both our present life and the life to come. Paul is willing to hedge the bet that training and godliness actually matters for today, from now on and through eternity. In other words, he's explaining the, this one thing, training and godliness is the most important area of discipline over all the things that we could possibly dedicate our lives toward. Pause for a second. Do you believe the Bible here? 
maybe, maybe you're like reading this and you're like, it sounds like an exaggeration. So, is it really better? Is it really better? I confess my heart doesn't always feel like it's better. But if we truly believe that the scriptures hold the authoritative word of God for our lives, then training in godliness is kind of a big deal. In fact, it's the biggest deal. It's a Genesis to Revelation kind of deal. And if you look at where your mind wanders when you have free moments, if you think about what you desire or what you spend your time and your money on, you are likely to put your dedication into those things that you believe are going to hold the greatest value. So Paul is writing that the single most important thing that we could potentially dedicate our lives to is training and godliness. Godliness has been a major theme throughout this letter so far. Uh, We define godliness as embodying the character of God as our own. When somebody is godly, they are embodying the character of God. In fact, the entire letter is meant to spur this church on towards internalizing the character of God to internalize his love and his kindness, his justice and his hope all within them. Now, even a few weeks ago, we we went into this poem that Paul was citing and it is about Jesus. And it says that he is the mystery of godliness in the flesh. If you want to know what God's character is like, you look to Jesus and you see what God is like. In Jesus, you see what God is like. The mystery of godliness is made manifest in Jesus. And here's what's crazy. As we train in godliness, as we become more like Jesus, as, we, as my, my friend used to say, as we look in the mirror each morning and seeing a little bit more of Jesus, the world around us sees Jesus through us. Now, there is a point, though, that I think at first glance might be a little confusing. It was for me. Paul has been slamming these false teachers who have been doing all of this stuff that would appear to be training in godliness. I mean, they're, according to most world religions, they were, told, they were teaching to not do certain things and do certain things and not eat certain things. But you see, they have been relying on their legalistic religiosity. They've been telling others what they should or shouldn't do. And now Paul is telling Timothy to tell them, don't do that. You're relying on everything other than the grace of God. Which makes sense. Sounds like Paul. So then why now, Paul's like, tell them to stop saying it's about their work. It's about their training. And now he's saying, but go and train. Specifically train in godliness. That sounds a lot like work harder. Train in godliness. Be disciplined. Be dedicated. Be focused. So what is he doing here? Let's sit in that tension for a minute. Because Paul goes on in verse 9 to say it this way. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So he explains that he is about to to essentially cite a quotation, a saying of his. Now, this could have been one that a saying that was familiar within the entire early church, or it might have just been a Paulism that he said on the reg. But either way, it is something that would make sense that Timothy, his disciple who'd been walking with him for over a decade, would, when he said this, he's like, absolutely. Like, oh, I remember that one. Like, yeah, you always say that one. Yeah, Absolutely. So he says, it is trustworthy and deserving a full acceptance. So 
Now he's going to get into what does it look like to train in godliness? So he's going to take Timothy back to a familiar phrase that holds the main point to this entire passage. Verse 10, for to this end, we toil and strive. That sounds kind of legalistic, right? Like work harder, do more. Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believes. So he gives language here to the things that we desire, the things that we value. Those kind of things are the things that we toil and strive after. We are willing to put in the work when, we re- when something really matters to us. At least for most of us, that's probably the case, right? If you really want something, you do the work for it. Just like a marathon runner, a soldier, or an Ephesian body sculptor back in the day, right? So this thing, though, this training in godliness, Paul is saying is something that we are to strive and toil after. Now, again, that can take us towards a space of, in our imaginations, towards legalism. I mean, isn't this the kind of language that, that feeds into a legalistic heart that has been misused or misunderstood in unhealthy and unhelpful ways throughout the centuries? Do these things better. Do these things, not these things. And if you do these things, then it will make you better. And in fact, it'll probably even make you better than the other people, which is also pretty cool to be better than other people. And if we hold that understanding, if we hold that understanding of this passage, then we can read something like this and we can do one of two things with it. The same two mistakes that I made with my rehab up until last week. We could try to pretend that sin really isn't the problem. In fact, the problem is probably those people, anybody who sounds in any way like advocating for legalistic religion. Anything that even sounds that way. We're like, that's it. That's the problem. So this is the way that in their ancient world that they lived and interacted. This is why the Christians in the early church got so much hate thrown their way because the way they were living was vastly different than the world around them. And today we are called to be the kind of people that the way that we live is vastly different than the world around us. Downplaying and dismissing the things that God calls sinful patterns of living and just doing things our own way because it sounds best to us. It worked out in the garden, so it probably will still work for us today. But if there is a real problem and we refuse to leave the land of ignorance around it, then it doesn't matter if it feels better today or if it feels okay today. The problem still exists. My rotator cuffs haven't felt in a great deal of pain every day for the last year. Some days it was awful. Some days not so bad. But when I was not so bad, I would convince myself that I was actually all better now. And then I would do 10 push-ups, and I would be on the floor in pain again. Like that doesn't work. The ignores doesn't work. So then we can try the other option, which is to try to create the solutions on our own terms. What works best for us? Okay, so we know what those, those people have said. We know what the Bible says, but that doesn't really gel with me. So I'm, I have a better solution. And so then we start crafting our own solutions to problems. And what we so quickly end up in, if we're honest, is our own version of legalism. We created the rules. We created the laws that we are now subject to and that we start holding others to. 
And this is what the false teachers were doing. They saw that there was a very real problem in sin that separates God from humanity. But then they went after a solution on their own terms. They began to define good and bad for themselves. When I finally admitted that I was injured, um, I made up my own exercises. I would rest my shoulders for up to a month at a time without a lot of strenuous activity. And sometimes they worked for a little bit. Sometimes our solutions to our sin problems can work for a little bit. Our best efforts can work for a little bit. I'm sure for many of us, you guys uh, have been journeying around planet Earth long enough to know that like, yes, you can will yourselves to be better for a little bit. But does it ultimately satisfy the problem? Does it get to the root of the problem? In my story, that hasn't been the case. See, ignoring the problem doesn't bring about healing. And neither did my inexperienced ability to try to issue my own recovery plan. I had to go to a physical therapist, an expert who now is actively guiding me to disciplines that are going to bring about the healing of my body. And this is the kind of thing that Paul is getting at in here in in, uh, verse 10. For to this, we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. See, Paul is pointing us to the ultimate healer. He's saying, stop it. Stop trying to figure it out on your own, in your own terms. Stop it. The one who brings expertise and authority to any conversation, the living God, the true savior, Jesus has come. And he has sent us his spirit so that we'd be guided in grace and truth. Remember that, that inscription that I read from the Caesar statue in Ephesus, the manifest God sprung up from Ares and Aphrodite and universal savior of human life. Kind of sounds similar to this, right? Because we have our hopes on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now with Caesar, it's really nice that he was willing to put the resources in to um, rebuild the city for for the people in Ephesus. Like if, if a politician does nice things, you can be grateful for those nice things. It is great to have your city rebuilt for sure. That has some value. Maybe it's just me, but that feels like a little bit of a difference between that though and universal savior of human life, right? Like that just like, like somebody who rebuilds the city just doesn't exactly get the role, the title of savior automatically, right? See Caesar's best, his best produced the resources to rebuild the city in ruin. Now I didn't do a historical analysis on this, but I'm imagining for that rebuilding project, Caesar didn't even go, wow, we need to make sure that this city in Ephesus gets rebuilt. Okay, so here's what we're gonna do. Take all of the gold in my palace. Take all of it. I want none of it. Sell it all, give it away. I'm gonna go live in the slums for a little bit. So that way all the money can go to rebuilding this city. I guarantee you that's not what happened with Caesar, right? It probably costed him nothing personally. But yet he is the one who is being called the universal savior of all human life. And then you have Jesus. His best produced salvation for all who believe on him. And the cost was him departing the kingdom to come into our frame of existence. 
to bring about life, light, and freedom through not just his life, but then his death and his resurrection. That is the extent to which Jesus went through to become a true savior. See, Jesus came to save people, not just from one ancient city state, but to save people from all across the globe, from every people group and every ethnic tribe. There is no cost that Jesus was not willing to pay, no distance that he wouldn't go. He took on death. Do you believe this? He carried our brokenness, our shame, our punishment and put it on himself. Are you hearing this? This is crazy. You probably hear the gospel often. Don't let this not hit you now. We humans regularly fill and have only ever exclusively felt some degree of separation and relationship with God the Father, right? Like that's our entire existence. We're born into sin and it perpetuates up until now, even when we have the spirit of God in us, we still have the flesh that's hanging around with it, right? So we have always only experienced a disrupted inner uh, relationship between us and God to some level. Jesus didn't. Jesus never felt separation between him and the father throughout all of eternity up until that moment on the cross when he bore the weight of our sin on himself and he cried out, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, the Trinity went to the breaking point to save us. Caesar has nothing on this. Hear this? Neither do our politicians, neither does your role model or your influencer friends, neither do your parents or your spouse or anybody else that you look up to in the history of the world other than Jesus. Jesus is the only saver who can truly save because the only one who could, would, and did die for you and me. No wonder Paul is so focused on us placing our hope fully in this living God, Jesus, that even when the days are dark, when our weeks look bleak, when the diagnosis comes in, when tragedy strikes a family that you know and love, we can cling to Jesus because he is our living hope because he has come and he is coming back again. And it just so happens that this whole clinging to Jesus concept, this abiding with Jesus concept is literally what Paul is talking about here when he's saying to train in godliness. See, when I went to my physical therapist last week, at the end of the session, he told me that he, he truly believes that my shoulders are gonna get healed. They're gonna have a full recovery. So like I realize it's really, it's my example. And I realize that there are far greater examples in this room of this reality. But he said that for my rotator cuffs to heal, for me to get back to full strength, it's gonna require me listening to him and staying disciplined with the plan that he has laid out for me. That's what training is. 
This type of training, it's not about just legalistic obedience or doing things on our own terms, but this is all focusing us on abiding with Jesus. That our training is to remember that apart from him, we can do nothing. Training to actively participate with him by listening and obeying his voice. Training in the disciplines of the faith, spiritual rhythms that are meant not to earn God's approval, but to draw us near to Jesus. Think about your week. What have you been toiling and striving toward? Is it about landing the new job, relationship, home, that Christmas present that you want to splurge and buy for yourself? Like, what do you toil? What are you striving for? I'd imagine a lot of those things probably have some value to them. But training in godliness has full value today and for every day from now through eternity. And when we spend time drawing near to Jesus in the scriptures, in prayer, through fasting, in a discipleship mentorship, when we come together to worship and to posture ourselves under the scriptures, that is toil and striving. I don't know. I, I think that there was this reaction against legalistic trends to saying like, no, Christianity is supposed to be easy. It's not going to take any work. Just like, ju- just, just be. No, that's not biblical. It is toil and striving, but the toil and striving, it's not about acting better. It's about drawing near to Jesus and allowing his spirit to transform us. There is training, there is discipline, there is toil, there is striving, but it's for something that doesn't rust, it doesn't fade, it doesn't erode, it doesn't disappoint. I want to believe this, y'all. Do you? Do you believe this? Now tonight, we are going to draw near to Jesus together as we train our hearts and our minds to remind ourselves of the gospel as we take part in communion. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. Because you see, in communion, we get the most beautiful reminder that it isn't on us. It isn't about us. It's not about what we have done. See, in communion, we remember that we are God's and he is ours. That we have been adopted. That our effort is not toward earning God's favor, but positioning ourselves to experience his presence. So we take communion. So we take communion. Now, if you're new into our community, you don't need to call this church your home church to participate, to, to come to the table. We invite anyone who desires to be reminded of God's love for them to come forward. Anyone who has experienced the life-giving breath of the Spirit of God within us. If we've surrendered our lives to the risen Savior, our King Jesus, we want you to come and participate. I'm going to invite the uh, communion um, oh my goodness uh, pastor outers, I'll go with that right now um, to come on forward. Distributors, good word. Good word. Now, if you're here tonight and you're still figuring out what you believe or what, even what you think about this guy, Jesus, feel zero awkwardness to simply stay in your seat and reflect on this moment.
and know that you're in a safe community to ask questions, um, to, to journey, to wrestle. This is that kind of a place. At least we hope it is for you. Now, when we take communion, we take of the bread and we eat it because we are reminded that Jesus's body was broken for us so that we may live. And then we take of the wine or the juice and we're reminded that he drank the cup of God's justice so that we could be forgiven. Because Jesus is the living God, the only savior who could die, the only one who could be risen. So as you come up, you'll find a piece of matzah bread and you can dip it in either um, grape juice or wine, whichever is your preference. If you are, uh, have a gluten sensitivity or allergy, uh, we'll have gluten-free options at both of the tables as well for you to take. And simply, what I would encourage and ask you to do is not come up quickly. Take time to reflect. The scriptures say to not approach the table quickly, but to ask the Spirit of God to examine our hearts, to expose anything in us. And that means if there is somebody, even in this room, somebody you need to call on the phone to, to go and repent to and, and reconcile with, hold off, go have the conversation and then come and participate. Because what we are doing is we are being invited into the table of the kingdom to come, to be reminded that our hope is in a living God who is the savior of the world. So we look forward to his return. And until then, we train in godliness as we abide in him. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for Jesus, the living God, the savior of the world, the one who had no business entering into planet death, but was the only one who had the right to take our punishment on himself. And in doing that, we are free. And Jesus said, those who have been made free are free indeed. So help us to live in that, Lord. Help us to trust that, to believe that, that we are yours and you are ours. And help us to be agents of your love, of your justice, of your grace, and of your gospel to the world around us. A world in desperate need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.